Welcome to Stories That Stick, a podcast series about the stories that shape us. And watch this interesting part where I'm standing in front of all white students and I'm not comfortable. Hey guys, it's Ade here, the host for Stories That Stick. We are officially back. We went on a summer break because, well, we just needed to, in truth, especially amidst COVID, you know, increase, you know what, no need to go down that long story as to why we went on a break, but we're back. And our first guest for season two, or I guess just an ongoing continuation, is Alim Kamara from Sierra Leone. And he has a company, an amazing company that does traditional storytelling and motivational workshops for schools and universities and even private businesses. So Alan doesn't join us in the studio because we are still social distancing. We're not going into the studio yet. And we talk about the stories that made an impact on his life and how he pretty much got into doing what it is he does do. He's inspiring. He's an incredible, incredible storyteller and speaker. So guys, I hope you enjoy this episode. Do follow him on Story Story, which is S-T-O-R-I-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-H-Q. That's on Instagram or just type that in on Google. And before we do forget, do follow us on Black Ticulate across all social media platforms. And we do start every conversation talking about death. So if this does trigger you, then please do skip ahead around one minute or when you do hear the page turning sound effect. All right, guys, get comfortable and hopefully enjoy this episode. See you on the other side. Bye. Welcome to Stories That Stick. <laughs> I love it already. Love it you already. Love it already. I love titles. it already. When I saw the title, I was like, come on. Where have you been? Where have you been? So, yeah. I've been around still, but uh, welcome indeed. Now, I often, with all my guests, mm-hmm. start with a question, or rather, not even a question, but the subject death. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about death? Um, that is going to happen. And there's a saying I came across where it says, think about death often because it reminds you to live. And do you? I do my utmost too. There are moments where you're like, am I living? <laughs> um, but yeah, I do my utmost too when I remember things like that. For me, it's a, it's a kick up the butt to be like, come on, let's go. Let's keep it moving. Well... I tend to believe death does inform how we live, Alim. And often a majority of us do want to have a form of legacy. Yes, we want to live legacy. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so do yeah. you want a legacy? Do I want a legacy? Um, I don't know if it's a legacy that I want per se. Because I think if I get caught up in looking to build a legacy, I could lose the vision of what I'm actually supposed to be doing. Because then it just becomes like a cool Instagram post. Yeah, so, no, yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Well, let's get into what it is you do and how you are, well, inspiring. But in order for us to actually do that, I actually want us to start from the beginning. And I want us to go into your first chapter, 
which for me is your first decade, zero to 10. Okay, Alan, so zero to 10, who were you? Where did you grow up? You know, tell us some stories, some fond memories. Zero to 10. All right, so born in the UK and then went to live back home in Sierra Leone when I was about two. And whilst in Sierra Leone, I would also be taken to the village. And when I was in the village, storytelling took away the strain of a long journey, of long walks. But also, I was quite troublesome when I was young in that I couldn't supposedly keep still. Notice I said the word supposedly, um, because I don't remember this. So I couldn't keep still, except for when storytelling was happening. And so when I returned back to the UK, and I was about eight, there were... Alan, forgive me for interjecting, because I'm certain, in fact, I can already tell you've told this story many a times and how you became Uh a storyteller. But I am just curious to know that from zero to two, you were born here, but then your parents, Mm -hmm. they stayed here, but decided they wanted you, your siblings, or just... Yeah, so my... my, Oh, okay. So myself and my sister... Right. um, Well, younger sister, two years younger than me. Um, Forgive me for interjecting like that. That's I was just trying to really paint the family. No, that's fine. It's like you said. Like you said, I'm I'm used to telling a particular way. So please feel free for me to add more to the scenery. This is what we do with storytelling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I went with my sister, and I remember I went with my cousin as well. Right. Why did your parents decide? Did you ever ask them? Yeah, it was for my mum. It was a it was an opportunity for me to get some cultural upbringing, but then also her and my dad were going through some like rocky times, and after discussing with um, my uncle, her brother, it was like, well, send the children here. You sort yourself out with your studies and your work, and then we'll take it from there. So my mum then used to ship things, yeah, like trunks of, I remember that trunk being opened up and it was like Cocoa Pops, Rice Krispies, <laughs> um, clothes. And I remember like her sending us bikes even. I don't know why I remember this, but my bike was called White Horse. And when we came out with the bike, it was just, it was the freshest um, it was just the freshest look. Did everyone else in the neighborhood have bikes? No, they didn't. No, How they didn't. How were you playing? Um, we used to race a lot. And I even remember, I don't know why it sticks, but I could run really fast. Um, we could climb mango trees, go down to the river and jump and swim. Like, this was childhood. It was just, we played together. So when I came over to the UK, it was this... Uh, Muslims over there, Christians over there, boys over there, girls over there. And I'm like, what the heck is this? Here's a question then. Identity. Mm -hmm. Because you were black in a black country. So your identity and cultural references would have been different to knowingly knowing you're black in the UK. So how did that play growing up? So interestingly enough, when we came over to the UK... Where were you based? I was in Hornsey. It's, um, I'd say there weren't as many black people in in Hornsey, but what we would find uh, people driving past in their Ford Escorts 
and throwing bananas out the window. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when we were young. How did you navigate those sort of, well, racist acts? Did you go home and talk to your parents? What was that conversation around? We, we didn't. We didn't have those conversations. We knew what it was and we kept it to ourselves. And, okay, so when we came over, there weren't normal storytellers around the campfire. But my cousin Abwe introduced us to hip-hop. So now we're now introduced to this evolved style of storytelling where it's like it's rhythmic, it's beats. But not only that, we're talking Tupac, KRS-One. We're talking NWA. So when these situations are happening on the streets with us, with these people throwing stuff or saying racial slurs or the police uh, stopping us at young age, we knew because we'd heard it in the rap songs. We knew what it was. So going home and talking about it, like for us, we in our heads, like, our mom ain't got time for this. Her thing is, hey, you people, have you done your homework? Like, that was their focus. So for us, we just internalised it. Mm. You know what? We're getting into our secondary school, aren't we? I forgot, which is our next chapter. And for those of you who are coming to this podcast brand new, I genuinely always am quite interested in the stories yeah. that I heard as a child, a teenager, and adult. So I normally just ask them those three questions. And Alim, do you recall what you said as a child, one of your fondest stories that you read or heard? Yeah, um, Anansi and the Calabash. So the story of Anansi and the Calabash, Anansi decides one day that he wants all of the wisdom in the world. And so he gets all of the wisdom in the world and he puts them into this calabash and he ties the calabash in front of him. But as he's climbing the tree, his son comes along and says, Papa, why don't you put the bowl on your back? And so Anansi feels like, hold on, I'm supposed to have all of the wisdom in this bowl. How is this boy? And he gets frustrated and as a result, ends up dropping the calabash bowl and it falls to the ground, smashes and scatters all over the world. And that's how we all have a little piece of wisdom within us. And so that story told me, like, Alim, even though you get called stupid or foolish or whatever it is, if that story is true, that means that there is a little bit of wisdom in you. So be mindful of the words that you get told that knock you down. What a story. So speaking of stories, let's continue with your chapter, which is 11 to 20. Alim, what was happening and how are you thinking about becoming this person that we find you today? So we, okay, so before we move, um, just before we move, actually, my, I think about a year or so, my dad actually passed away. So now you're, you're making me remember things now as well. That's, ah, that's coming up. Um, so I only remember seeing my dad once. And the reason why I saw my dad once was because he came to the house, my uncle's house, to make amends. And I remember standing behind my uncle's leg and looking up at this man, and I don't know how, but I knew he was my dad. And then my uncle drove him away. 
Like he basically said, you know, as big brother, you haven't been in these children's lives. And now all of a sudden you want to turn up. And my dad ended up leaving. And I remember then going over the balcony and seeing my father disappear. Fast forward to London, my dad passes away. And this also happens on my birthday as well. And I never got a chance to know him. So by the time I move into secondary school now, there are two words that would fire up a young person. That was your mum <laughs> or your dad. Ah, oh, my days. It's just, it's war. And as an African young boy, my cousin and our young boys, we then now get introduced into the West Indian community. So we need to get rid of this accent so we can fit in to this uh, cool West Indian acceptable lifestyle. But <laughs> few of the things would save you if you were in these scenarios. One was that you could cuss good. The next one, you had to be fast or damn good at football. And which were you? I was fast. Well, we happen to always have, whether or not through the education systems directly, but we'd certainly have that one teacher who oh, saw some... Are you ready? Who are saw ready? something in us. I, I want to be are ready. ready? So we had a teacher by the name of Mr. Decent Henry from St. Vincent. Yo, salute to Mr. Henry. The way he would cuss us, that he would cuss you to the point where you wanted to cry. And then also, he, he had a kidney problem and he would collect dialysis machines to ship back home to St. Vincent. But funnily enough, he would drive around, pick us up from our houses on a Saturday and go and get us to help him pack these things. And through that, he would talk to us and have conversations to us, but he would also remind us that we're black and that we're as black children that we are going to be treated differently. It was fresh to have somebody cuss us and be like, listen, if you keep acting the way that you're acting, you're going to be a target. Mm. Mr. Henry passed away last year, and I remember going to the ceremony and afterwards, people speaking about him. Bro, if you hear the testimonies about this man, and for us, it was like, Mr. Henry doesn't belong to anybody else, he's ours. But then there was somebody who got up and said, yeah, there was once a time when I was out on the street and it was like one, two o'clock and Mr. Henry picked me up and took me home. <laughs> um, there was a parent who saw Mr. Henry and he asked, how's your son doing? Da, 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 da. Now, by now, he'd left school, yeah? She said he ain't doing nothing. He just lays him at home. Mr. Henry went to my man's house, woke him up out of his bed, and said, let's go, you're going to college. Now, that young man is a teacher in school, teaching. So knowing that that's what he did in terms of touching lives and stuff, was something else. 
what I'm hearing about Mr. Henry and what's so interesting from my perspective, and please let me know if I've got this, if I'm reading this wrong, but mm. it seems that you respect quite tough love and authoritative sort of figures, but for men. Potentially, but I think it's more about not so much from just men, it's tough love. Tough love, full stop. Yeah. At this stage, you're now starting to potentially start thinking about college and university, right? Uh-huh. And what you potentially want to do as a career. Tie this up because what you do doesn't necessarily, what you do now, that is, doesn't necessarily seem like there's a straightforward path. Um, so when I finished school, I decided to go to college and do business because I am an African and as an African, if you're not a doctor, lawyer, engineer, you are wasting your life. Like, what, what is this? You want to go and be a clown? You felt those pressures, did you? Felt them. I internalised them. Right. So I go to college, I do business, pass it, and then I time to go to university, and I decide to do microcomputer systems technology. Wow, okay. <laughs> like that, that was a left, I didn't see that coming. Bro, I really wanted to prove to the world and to my parents, to the family, that yes, I've got this. After a few years, I was like, I'm done. Like, I'm literally just trying to fill a void um, in thinking that, ah, if I go and do these things, I will finally prove myself and I will, I will finally be good enough. Nobody had to say it to me. This is something that... The story that I was telling myself. Yeah. And as long as I kept on telling myself that story, it held weight. So did you then complete uni or you didn't? No, so I, I left and dropped out. And then I decided to go and do creative and media writing at Middlesex University. But when I contacted them the spaces were already filled up. So now all you had was just a process known as clearing. And I contacted the uni and the university said to me, well, the slots are filled up, but you can message the, the lecturer. So I messaged the lecturer, Maggie Butt, and I'm like, I'm gonna be real with you. I write lyrics in the back of my classroom. For years, I've been doing something that I'm not passionate about. I don't know why, I just decided to just be honest. Then she said to me, send me some of your poetry, send me some of your lyrics. And now by these times, I'm going to Brixton poetry events. Um, so like, I've got lyrics just sitting there. Um, and she reads my work and says, we would love to have you on the course. Amazing. Bro, acceptance. I got accepted by a white lady who is also a poet, but also the head of creative and media writing. Things begin to shift mentally. I'm like, whoa, the lyrics I was writing in my bedroom have got me into university. All the grades and didn't, none of it did that. It was my lyrics. Yeah, now I hear that. Here's a question then, Alan. Go for it. And I know we're now getting into our third chapter, which brings us into the present. Uh-huh. But you also did write something that was one of your fondest stories told as a teenager. 
was Mr. Natin. Mr. Natin. <laughs> Mr. Natin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, so this one is a long one, so I'm going to try and cut it down. So Mr. Natin and Zachary, they're best of friends. And they live next to each other. And Mr. Natin has everything. Big house, you know. Whereas he has this little digga digga pan house. But anything he wants, he can ask his friend. And his friend will give it to him. But one day they decide it's time for us to get married, you know? So they start making their journey to this place where you can choose your wife. Like, it's just a place of women. But what would happen is, it was said that a man would go there and he would see a beautiful woman and they would say, ah, look at this woman. But then another woman would pass and they would be like, so much confusing. Sometimes they would just leave without even picking a wife. So it was decided that the women would pick the men. So then Mr. Natin and Zachariah, they decide to make their way. But as they're going, Zachariah gets upset. And Mr. Natin is like, what's wrong? He's like, well, look at you. You are wearing Pagbani. That's the, uh, <laughs> for anybody listening, that's just my African version of Armani. <laughs> <laughs> The, the idea is that Mr. Natin is wearing all these amazing, you know, he's dressed very well. And he says, look, if I go there, no woman is going to want me. And so Mr. Natin says, well, let's change clothes. So they exchange clothes. And when they get to the village, instantly, eight women fall for Zachariah. Only one woman falls for Mr. Natin. Now, obviously, the ceremonies happen. So when these women come, they look at the house that Mr. Natin is living in in comparison to what Zachariah is living in. Ah, these women. So over time, Mrs. Natin always has to be providing for the wives of Zachariah. And in the end, Zachariah just decides, you know what, I've had enough. I can't take the shame. I'm going to kill Mr. Natin. And so at night, he gets some people to dig a deep, 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 deep ditch. In the evening, he starts calling out, Mr. Natin, Mr. Natin, fire, fire, fire. And Mr. Natin, obviously being concerned for his friend, he goes to run and his wife grabs him and says, don't go. But he doesn't listen. And he runs down, slips and falls and bangs his head and dies. And what happens is, Mrs. Natin then decides to have all of the yams, the cocoa yams, the potatoes in the field gathered. And she cooks them. And she begs all of the children around the world to help her mourn for Natin. And so, it is said that when you see children crying and you ask them, why are you crying? And they will say, nothing. You will understand that the children at times are just helping Mrs. Natin mourn for her husband. And they are crying for nothing. Mm, I see. see. So, yes, sir. We are now looking at 20 plus.
we find you on the tail end or maybe bang in the middle of Middlesex doing your creative media writing. Right, right, right. So now you're thinking, I'm going to use this education I'm getting to become X. So maybe mm -hmm. you can join this bridge for us, what was going on around the time and how your career started to take shape. Right. So in the third year of university, Maggie, who was my tough love teacher, for some reason, she took a, a, a kind, tough approach to me um, and even pushed me to write the final piece of the university graduation. But she suggested in the third year that I do a storytelling module. When I go to do the module, it is taught by a Don storyteller by the name of Sally Palm Clayton. She suggests to us that we do a traditional story. I choose a Nancy. Nobody's heard of a Nancy. What, what do you mean you haven't heard of a Nancy? Are you mad? You haven't heard of Brass Spider and Nancy. So all of a sudden I realized like, oh, Tom and Jerry have taken over. Who's gonna keep the African traditional storytelling alive? Well, as I often say, there's a problem that irks you. It often means that you are part of the solution. So I finished uni and I have a friend by the name of Action Jackson, motivational speaker. Um, there's another brother who I come into contact with. I'm just like fast forwarding the story by the name of Andrew Mohammed, the investigator, who's a historian, uh, Egyptologist, motivational speaker. And they already go into schools. So Jackson is like, well, I go into schools and sometimes, you know, uh, I get double bookings. Would you be up for taking some of my sessions and doing motivational speaking? So I'd start going into schools and I'm doing motivational speaking. I haven't really pulled out the storyteller yet. Every so often I might drop something. When I go with brother Andrew, he will give me like a five minute slot at the end of his performance or presentation for me to rap and tell a little story. And then, then I start traveling out of London where, and watch this interesting part, where I'm standing in front of all white students and I'm not comfortable. Mm. Like, who the heck is going on? Why am I so nervous? And so now I have to work out of that uncomfortable feeling to just be like, I'm on a stage and my thing is to come here and deliver. So I was just fully just, bam, I'm an African storyteller from Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone got his name from uh, Pedro de Sincha who saw the, the mountains and, and he said that the mountains look like lions sitting down. And so he called it Sierra Leone, mountain of lions. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa. <laughs> so there, I come into my uh, a stronger sense of my identity. Yeah, no, I get that. And am I to say then the rest is history? This is where story story comes into play. This, you become a company that's touring. Yeah, my company used to be called ATG Empire, and this is when we were young. We we had a group, and it was called Anything Goes. But when I got into the corporate world, I changed it to Accelerate to Greatness. But there was still something that I was like, ah, it's not sitting right yet. And when you're opening a story, you say, story, story. This is what I got in the village. And you would respond, story. 
And the question is, do you want a story or do you want a story? And when you reply story, it means yes, you want a story. If I say in the middle, I say story, story. I'm asking the question, are you still with me or are you still with me? And when you say story, you're saying I'm still with you. If I say at the end, I say story, story. I'm asking, did you like that story? Did you connect to that story? And they go, story. They say, yes, we connected with your story. So then it was like, it became the perfect name for the company. Before we do leave, if there is one book you can gift others, what book would it be and why? Um, the book would definitely be The Alchemist. Why? It relates to every human being on the planet who's going on a journey. Mm, I really like that. The Alchemist by Poel Coel. Okay, so Alan, how can we find you on the World Wide Web? And when, not if, but when we do find you, what would you like us to do? Uh, so when you find me, um, story, story, HQ, few things, few rules, you have to come. It's all about the lips. The L is listen, right? You got to listen, two ears, one mouth. The I is imagine. So I tell the children, imagine, because we're going to go into a world of possibilities. Some things to you are not going to fit your reality. So you've got to be prepared to imagine. Then the P is participate. Get ready to get involved in the storytelling. And then the last one is share. What keeps our stories alive is when we tell them to others, when we pass them down. So that's lips. So that's listen, imagine, participate, share amazing well alan it's been an absolute pleasure and guys thanks for listening once again as always please do rate do subscribe do just give us any feedback because we're always trying to be better 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 so yeah stay tuned for another episode bye hey guys if you enjoyed today's episode please do share it and if you'd like to be featured on the podcast please do get in touch.